Hey everyone, welcome to DF Direct Weekly number 79, I think. And uh, yeah, huge week this week with the reveal of the new RTX 4000 silicon. Brand new technologies, massive controversies though, owing to prices. Um, much more to discuss beyond that though. And uh, joining me, first of all, John Linneman. Rich, yes, it's a very busy week. There's a lot to talk about. Video card stuff, of course, but there's some other news items as well that I think we're going to touch on. Absolutely. And of course, Alex Battaglia. Yeah, there's a, also a lot of ray tracing uh, stuff coming out of that conference <laughs> as well. So I'm definitely here to talk about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so let's kick off with the first news item. So Tuesday uh, this week, um, Jensen Wang uh, appeared with a new GTC keynote to reveal the RTX 4000 series cards. Uh, three cards in the initial lineup, RTX 1490, uh, priced at $1,600 or thereabouts. Um, and then there's two 4080s, one at 899, one at, I think, 1199. And um, the weird thing there being that the specs between the two 4080s are radically different to the point where, to all intents and purposes, uh, they are different cards. And um, obviously, there's been a great deal of uh, controversy and backlash around um, this, because if you talk about uh, the previous generations, like the relationship between the 3080 and the 3090, 3080 was essentially a cut down um, 3090. But in this case, the 4090 is its own chip. The 4080, uh, 16 gigabyte that sits in the middle there, that's its own chip. And then the 4080, 12 gigabyte, is again another chip so rather than being all part of the same family essentially we've got three different dies here three uh, quite different performance levels the spec differentials between them are actually uh, pretty huge and um, there's been a lot of controversy and a lot of backlash about the prices as i said and um, actually i'm going to go straight to uh, some of the supporter questions about the pricing uh, let's start with uh, trans tech girl is jensen smoking crack with these gpu prices but seriously anchoring the price with what on the face of it looks like a reasonably priced 4090 to then double the price of a 3080 with the 4080 and try to con people with the 4080 12 gig which is just a 4070 renamed to make people think a 4080 is available for sub 1000 pounds it's pretty scummy in my opinion. If the reporting was that a 4070 now costs 950 and a 4060 will likely cost more than a 3080 and offer very little in performance increase, then I think less people would be inclined to pay these stupid prices. Was there a question in there somewhere? I guess. What do you think of all this? Um, where do we go from this one? Uh, an alternative viewpoint here from Arsen Kareptian. Sorry about the pronunciations. Um, hi DF, the negative sentiment around NVIDIA's new release seems to be gaining steam. I believe people are missing the fact that due to the difficult political landscape in Europe and the energy price hike, the 4090 and 4080 were going to be unattainable and unsustainable to many in the first place. I believe NVIDIA expected low initial demand and priced this in at launch. Also, in terms of performance, these cards offer a significant improvement your Cyberpunk 4K 120Hz with RTX and Ultra settings announcement was mind-blowing compared to past generations. The value proposition of the 4080 and 4090 in the absence of a current answer from AMD is simply too high, much higher than when we went from 2000 series to 3000. What are your thoughts on this? Um, uh, one more question. Uh, there were many. Flo G. Hi there. Now that we know for certain that NVIDIA has lost touch with reality and want to sell consumers a 70 tier card for an 80 tier price, 
What do you wish to see from RDNA3 and AMD's presentation in November? Well, there's a big opportunity for them, assuming that all of this stuff about NVIDIA ripping us off is true, right? Um, but John, I'm going to go to you first here because, um, well, it's, it's, it's not what we were expecting. I think we, we expected the 4090 to come in at much the same price or a little bit higher than the 3090, but this 4080 stuff is obviously a concern, right? Yeah, fundamentally, I think that's the big problem, right? This whole 4070 masquerading as a 4080, that was kind of unexpected. And I think that this is this is not great for PR. And, but I, it, it is a complicated question. As it was also raised, there's a lot of issues right now going on with the supply chain. There's the energy crisis, the, all this kind of stuff happening right now. The cost of, of actually building these GPUs is ridiculous right now. I mean, you know, we, we've talked about the PlayStation 5 increasing in price and uh, all of our electronic devices are being impacted by this right now. Not to mention the exchange rates around the world plummeting in certain regions. Uh, that's also a trouble because I believe actually in this case, the 4090 in Europe is selling close to what, like 2000 euro? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's basically because the euro has tanked in value, yeah, right? I mean, exactly. it used to be the case that a euro was a little bit, well, significantly more valuable than a dollar, but there's essentially parity now. And then MSRPs by law have to include tax, which isn't added in the US side. So, yeah, that explains how, you know, a 15, yeah. 1600 US card turns into a 2000 euro card, which on but the face of it is. It's, it's not great. Not great, I agree. It's, an, it's another not great edition here. <laughs> yes, it's going to be our second not great edition. Which makes me think, weeks. I kind of wonder if it would have made more sense to do sort of an initial high-end launch. Like, all right, who we got the 40, 90 only. And basically say, these the next tier of cards is coming within a month or two. You know, set the stage. Here's the new features. High-end cards available soon. Here's all the stuff coming. And then it's... I feel like you can more easily gauge the state, the consumer reaction, and at least get the measure or the, the excitement out there first before either dropping the bad news or changing the strategy a bit based on the reaction to the public. But when you have this price announcement combined with the announcement from uh, EVGA this past week that they're getting out of doing basic GPUs in general, it's like a double whammy of not so great PR to deal with. I'd say. And I, I definitely think that there could have been some tweaks made to the way this was all rolled out because fundamentally the actual technology here is amazing. As we'll talk to, there's a lot of great stuff here. This is good. It's just this price situation is not great. As far as, far as AMD is concerned though, uh, they this is obviously a big opportunity for them. They they have a lot of people that, that there's a lot of people that love AMD cards and that's that's great, but they have traditionally lagged behind, well, traditionally as in the last few years, lagged behind in terms of certain high-end features. Their ray tracing performance, for instance, is simply not competitive. Uh, this is a chance, and I don't know what's going to happen here. This would be a good chance for them to come in with something that's actually competing in the ray tracing space and deliver a good card that can offer... I don't think they can actually match the top-end NVIDIA card in terms of performance, but I suspect they could get pretty darn close in terms of traditional rasterized performance and then just hope that, you know, they can make 
strides in their RT. They already have FSR 2.0. They can continue to improve that. That's actually in a pretty good spot. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff there for them to potentially come on strong, but there's, I, they, they're facing the same issues as NVIDIA and the supply chain and the cost of these wafers. I mean, this stuff's not cheap. And I, I don't right. think that AMD is going to be the savior here with super cheap but high-end cards. They're, they're going to face yeah. the same problem. It, it was the same narrative when 20 series came out, uh, yeah. 2000 series, where the prices were too high. And um, basically you paid uh, for features that didn't really have any software to support them at the time. And basically everybody was looking to RDNA 1 to provide kind of like the killer blow to this exploitative pricing and the prices came out and it was you know it, it there was no disruption against nvidia you know wasn't it 449 for 499 or something like that back then i think well there was the whole g baiting <laughs> situation oh, right. I forgot about that. <laughs> but right, even right. so there were you know the point is that you know amd delivered that knockout blow uh, of disruption with ryzen but they couldn't do it on the GPU side, that's the you know because of commercial realities, right? That's the, the bottom line. The, the one thing I want to say about AMD though that that really I've been thinking about a lot is that um, they they somehow seem to have pushed themselves into the hero position for the common man, if you will. Uh, there's always like the cheerleaders on the sideline that are very excited for AMD, um, and that. It's not like their stuff is like super dirt cheap here either. I mean, but they, they make good stuff. I can understand why people would be into it. But one practice that people seem to gloss over that happens so often is anytime you have sponsored games, right? NVIDIA does this, AMD does this. The thing is, is when an NVIDIA game, when they sponsor something and it'll have all the latest DLSS and all those features, those games still have AMD features. You still have your FSR in there and even XESS, I suppose, going forward. But what seems to happen with AMD-sponsored games is that they specifically leave out all the other vendor features. You don't get DLSS. You probably won't get XESS, though who can say. It's just focused on just the AMD features, and they often have issues as a result of that. And that's a practice that that is actually kind of a dirty thing on their side as well that somehow seems to get swept under the rug. And I think for the benefit of all PC gamers, that needs to change. Yeah, I would like to see that change as well too, because um, I was like uh, when I looked at our Resident Evil Two, it fe felt like a game that really could have used some other technology in it, or just you know, uh, Far Cry was another one. Uh, Far Cry was one that actually I felt like it really could have used DLSS at the time. Um, but um, getting back to uh, this topic of the, the GPU prices, is Jensen smoking crack? I don't know if Jensen <laughs> is smoking crack. Um, but I think uh, one thing that I really don't like about the prices, I actually think uh, the 4090 price is something that I can barely even critique at all because this is a massive Halo product that um, is just completely about, we threw everything in there. You know, it's, it's, that's what it is. And I, I can't even critique the price because it has no parallel uh, elsewhere. It's, it's really the Ferrari sports car of video game systems that you know like you know, of pc parts yep. that's what its purpose is i can't really critique that but the the light for the 4070 thing that is not a 4070 that 40 12 gigabyte thing i think is such a bad idea <laughs> in terms yeah. of the naming scene scheme and one thing that obviously we don't have access to the per unit margins of these gpus but what i would actually hope uh would happen 
uh, to create a market for the features that these GPUs use would be that there would be the Halo end product that has a huge margin on it or something like that. You know, it's really about selling a name and selling a brand and selling a, a feature set, and which was kind of what the Titans were about for a long period of time. But then you, as you go down the stack, the margin uh, starts uh, getting lower and lower. That's what I would hope and assume, so that you can actually create a mid-range at some point uh, that is semi-affordable, and also due to that semi-affordability, even though you have lower margins on it, uh, you sell a ton of them and you actually make a market for these features to be put in games. So you, they, have, they have a number of new features on these GPUs, obviously, but that's what I would hope. But the initial showing of these GPUs with that 480 12 gigabyte price makes me think that is not going to happen at all this time and the per unit margin is going to be pretty big even in the like the the mid and lower range uh, because you know that's what it looks like initially off the bat and uh, this is already failing uh, the criteria that I kind of wanted out of the equivalent of the 4070 as a result. I, I, if you recall, I said, I want that mid-range chip to be at least uh, uh, two times as good as a PlayStation 5. Something like the 4070 should and really would be that if it is 3090 power, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but that's kind of where this new 4080 12 gigabyte stands in terms of the little benchmarks that they put out there. Uh, and it's already, you know, way higher than the price of a PlayStation 5. So, yeah, that's not cool. Uh, <laughs> I'm not happy with those prices uh, of that 12 gigabyte card. The, the 4080 and the 4090, it's really hard to judge. But I think that 4080 12 gigabyte thing is just so weird. I, I, I don't know. I, I'm imagining what will happen is that um, there's going to be some weird squashing and you know, moving around in the market due to the old stock of 3080s and 3090s for a while, and even 3070s, I guess, um, where it's, I don't know if people are actually going to buy the 480 12 gigabyte right away at all. I think the 4090 will sell really well, maybe in the 4080, but that 12 gigabyte thing, who knows? It's so I'm, weird. I'm curious, Alex, so how, how do you think this, uh, so what's interesting about this launch is that we're now post uh, mining crash. So crypto mining, the boom is basically over, right? Uh, GPUs are available for purchase again. And this is the first card in a while NVIDIA has launched where that's actually the case. And, you know, how does that impact this, I wonder? Uh, oof, uh, 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 oh, God, that's a hard question because <laughs> you would have thought that that would mean that the, you know, like the, the how do you say it, the inflation of prices due to that crypto craze uh you know, that it would be lessening, lessening to a certain point, and then it would be reflected in the new generation of GPUs. Uh, but kind of the prices have just gone down to MSRP-ish and a little bit lower in some instances. The 3080 Ti, uh, 3090 Ti, those have actually collapsed in price. Yeah. Oh, they have you good. Know, 30, 3090 Ti was like a $2,000 card. No, really oh, really yeah, really. I forget about the, the price it's, of that It's, it's one, like 1100 even less than that now. Yeah. Okay, and I suspect that those prices will drop still further. Um, hopefully, but yeah, hopefully. Um, well, I think they will simply because uh, if the 4080 uh, 12 gig is essentially 3090 performance and it comes out at 899, then your 1100 $1,200 3090 Ti that doesn't support DLSS3 isn't going to be shifting, is it? So yeah, I, I, I would the say they're rich in the secondhand market, especially. I've already seen 3090 Ti for 900 bucks for sale. 
and I kind of feel like that's a pretty darn good value right there. Uh, you're getting a lot of card for that money. The, the, the key point here is that um, when a new generation comes along, you expect to have more performance for the same price, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. A big leap in performance. And the only card that is doing that is the 4090. Um, mm -hmm. uh, the 4080 12 gig, we don't really know that how you know how it's going to compare to existing generations, but essentially it looks as though there's still a lot of volume of, of um, 30 series cards and um, they have a set performance level and the, the bigger ones will adjust down in price. And then at the top tier, these new 4080s and 4090s will appear, but the value proposition doesn't shift that much until you get to the 4090, right? Which is, which is well, Alex, we've both got one. It's monstrous yeah. what this thing is doing. <laughs> it's it's like a little bit taller than the 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 thirty ninety. Like it it looks almost the exact same, but then when you put them right next to each other, you realize it's a tiny bit taller and has like some waviness to it. I'm talking more about performance than, oh, than physical. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's the true bitch and fast three D two thousand in the flesh <laughs> or in the silicon. Um, <laughs> yeah. So sort of to sort of go back to my sort of train of thought here. Um, there's that. It's basically that. 30 series isn't going anywhere and these cards slot in on top and I kind of expected that but what I didn't expect was that the 4080 would be announced and that it would be basically um you know of, of that magnitude of price um we do have comment from Jensen about why this is happening um basically he's saying that a 12 inch wafer is a lot more expensive today than it was yesterday and uh, it's not a little bit more expensive. It's a ton more expensive. Law's Law is dead. And the ability for Moore's Law to deliver twice the performance at the same cost or at the same or the same performance for half the cost every year and a half, it's over. It's completely over. And so the idea that a chip is going to go down in cost over time, unfortunately, is a story of the past. And um, he's saying the performance of NVIDIA's $899 GPU or 1599 GPU a year ago, two years ago, at the same price point, our performance with Ada Lovelace is monumentally better, off the charts better. So that's, well, I think, you know, we'll, we'll let the reviews, the reviews uh, speak to the, yeah. to the performance. Um, but basically he's saying, essentially, cost per transistor is now, go, is now uh, not reducing, it's going higher. And this ties into essentially what we were told way back in 2020 mm -hmm. about the whole reason that Microsoft created the Xbox Series S, which is that they saw no cost reduction strategy that would work for the Series X. So they made a less potent machine that costs a lot less to make. And, um, and you know, they basically got around the problem in advance almost by creating this lesser machine. And the quote from Andrew Goosen, the chief architect of Xbox series consoles, he says, Moore's Law is certainly not dead. Moore's Law is continuing and we have a good path to five nanometer and three nanometer. Um, so he's kind of, um, hmm. at the face of it, disagreeing with Jensen there. Um, right. But what he does say is what they're bringing, what they're not bringing anymore is a good cost reduction cost per transistor. And so this has foundational impacts to console development because now we'll get cost reductions, but they're slowing down and won't nearly be the same magnitudes that we've seen before, which is essentially what Jensen is saying. That is what Jensen is saying. And I think this also applies to the console market, as in it makes me wonder, will we even see a mid-gen refresh this time? And it's 
kind of feeling like maybe not? Uh, I think there's a lot of different dimensions to a console. I mean, the physical form factor, if you can reduce that, then your shipping costs come down quite Oh, a lot. yeah. I think we're going to see physical changes to the consoles. Right. But I'm but the, wondering the, if we're going to see price. a big performance uplift. One that's enough where they could massively reduce the price of the current unit while selling a much more powerful box, you know? Yeah, it's it's a really tricky situation here. And I think what Microsoft did with Series S, I mean, you know, we were kind of um, uh, not thrilled with the concept of the Series S, I think it's fair to say. But what Microsoft did was to basically sit us down after we saw the Series X and to say, look, this is why we have to make the Series S. This is the reality of making a silicon processor at this time. This is why we have to do it. And it ties in exactly what we're seeing here in the PC space, which is that the cost per transistor is obviously going up. Um, but at the same time, we're not getting that same level of explanation um, within the main messaging uh, for the for the marketing here. They just kind of dropped the prices and then the specs, which revealed that it's, you know, uh, on the face of it, a lesser processor. So, you know, I think there's a, a message here uh, that's that was kind of um, poorly delivered when it came to those price points. And over and above that, the unfortunate reality of that is that there's some amazing stuff within that presentation, which we were hugely excited about because we got a preview about and it's all been completely overshadowed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so everything that we're saying is really amazing about um, for, uh, the, the 40 class cards. It is still amazing. It's just been eclipsed by the pricing of the 4080 class uh, cards here, uh, which, you know, on the face of it has now become the, the main discussion point. So you do have to wonder whether they've kind of rushed the 4080 out and whether they should have just started with 4090, explained the technological innovations, and then go from there. Because, you know, the stuff that we saw, well, Alex, um, we've done this piece on DLSS3, which it's not a performance increase in the traditional sense, but it has profound um, uh, utility with higher resolution, high refresh rate screens. And I suspect that the lower end um, cards will transfer that to 1440p and 1080p screens respectively. So that's like a massive innovation there. The rate facing stuff we've seen mind-blowing brutal yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but yeah which kind of uh, leads us on to i guess the fact that we did put out a trailer about our existing uh the, the content we're going to do about dlss3 uh just after the launch and uh this is a supporter question which gets straight to <laughs> you won't get more blunt than this abba dabba pling boink thwee <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> uh, po poses the question what were your considerations behind releasing the RTX 4090 teaser trailer immediately after the launch? Seemed more like an ad than a, for the card than journalism, TBH. Did you collude slash collab collude. with NVIDIA about the timing? Well, let's talk about the timing first. Um, there's these oh, things yeah. called embargoes. So, yes, we, you know, we, we, we put our trailer That's... up after the event, not before it. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and then um, add for the card. Well, um, 4090 is everything I say it is in that trailer, and uh, the reviews will bear that out. Um, but it was about showing, you know, in the immediate aftermath of showing DLSS3, you got to see um, it's working 
essentially. It took us a lot of effort to actually capture the DLSS3 effects there. And, um, and you know, the performance increases, you know, you've got independent verification. I mean, we we used our own tools. We, you know, we built that content ourselves without any involvement from NVIDIA. So, you know, if, if fundamentally it is, hey, this is what we're working on. And we were slated to actually produce our full content after the event there. But, you know, the builds arrived too late. We just couldn't do it. So, you know, we wanted to to get some stuff out there. So that's so the, I actually think that's a good point. That's something, you know, it's a hot new card, right? Like putting something on the channel right when after it's announced makes a lot of sense in terms of getting eyes on the channel. And you got to do that to survive in this space. Uh, and the stuff yeah. there, uh, as you said, you wanted to have the whole thing done by then, but it just wasn't possible. So this is kind of a way to sort of say, hey, we got this thing. This is what's coming up, you know, just an experiment. It's I guess it's different than usual, but it is just because usually we we do have stuff in time for embargoes, but this time, you know, obviously the the timing on the software wasn't there. So, yeah. Although I laughed at a comment because somebody left a comment on that video saying, "Richard, I'll show you how much faster the 4090 is gen on gen. Alex, <laughs> let's check out how DLSS 3 works on a 4090." John let me take you on a 1080p adventure on the PS3. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Alex, really, what were you going to say there? I, I was going to say, basically, uh, is this an advertisement for the 4090? The answer is no. The, ad, the, the answer is that it's an advertisement for our coverage of a demo we had of DLSS 3 running on the 4090. It is the equivalent of Edge magazine getting a demo preview and writing a, you know, an exclusive Edge preview of, you know, some game that's coming out in a year and a half. Uh, you know, it's the exact same thing. That is, if you consider that journalism, this is also journalism. So um, that that is kind of how I feel about these kind of things. I don't I don't like the idea that someone would say we're colluding, uh, to say the <laughs> least, because we have. There, well, I don't know what collusion even means. I don't know Donald Trump style. No collusion. No collusion. Um, but yeah, what we got going on there is us. Like I think the reason why Nvidia would come to us about DLSS three in the first place, and the reason why this would ever even happen, is because you know I think we've shown. Uh, through our content of looking at uh, FSR, XESS now, DLSS, that we are producing very qualitatively different content uh, regarding, uh, you know, any sort of image quality in video games, uh, different than other channels and or other uh, GPU reviewers who will focus on things that they are their strengths. And I think we've pro proven our strength is to talk about those like technologies and less so raw performance at times. Uh, and that's what this is kind of about, because someone has to be able to show off whatever the heck DLSS3 is and how it works and then also critique it. And I think uh, that's what we're going to do and do really well. Uh, our first video will not be necessarily as completely in-depth as it can be as a result of the fact that we've only had the cards for so long and it's unreleased. Uh, but uh, you can immediately, of course, expect from us uh, any level of criticality and uh, thoroughness in, in any follow-up videos. So, abba dabba pling boink wee. Don't worry about it. It's yeah, cool. I think that's the thing, though, is like different channels have different focuses, right? And, you, you know, obviously we're focusing more on the raw performance and the technology and like what makes it interesting. Other There's other channels, if you're looking for, say, 
I don't know, like price per, you know, if you're looking for value proposition, there's other channels that kind of cover that stuff. That's why we, you know, DF direct is where we typically talk about pricing, but I guess you could say, but like, you know, yeah, this stuff, obviously our own opinions are that, yeah, it's expensive. And, you know, we have, we mentioned the stuff with the 40, 80, 12 gig, but I think that's not what the content's about. It's supposed to be kind of divorced from the pricing discussion. Yeah, essentially, our, our mission statement as Digital Foundry is to chart the state of the art in gaming technology. That's well, that's it. Right? State of, as well is, as the and, state of the art in the past, I guess. Well, well, let me rephrase that. The state of the art in gaming technology, past, present, and future. Okay, so there you go. That is our remit and has been for some time. Um, let's take a, take a quick look at some other questions here. Let's talk about DLSS3, actually. There's some good questions here. This one from SJ33, in brackets, Jake. Is D Hello? Is DLSS3 a misleading name? I understand it is essentially three technologies working in combination, DLSS plus reflex plus frame generation, the latter even being a toggle. Is it disingenuous to claim that this comp combination represents an entire new version of DLSS? Or are there other differences under the hood? Uh, well, frame generation is additive, right, Alex? Uh, yeah. Do you think this is a, well, it is a new generation, right? Because um, DLSS 1 and 2 spatial upscalers, right? You, using temporal data, but essentially, you know, a frame is being upscaled. Yeah. This is a new generation in that it's a temporal upscaler. Yeah. And um, I would say I would still consider it like it is additive to DLSS 2 points X, let's say, whatever those variations are. It is additive <laughs> to that because it is still going to be using that if you want to use it. Um, like, you know, and then on top of that, there's the option to turn on frame generation, and then frame generation automatically will kick in reflex. Uh, that's the design. And I would actually consider it part of the same continuity of DLSS uh, because, like Rich was saying, there's the spatial and the temporal dimension. Spatial was two, one and two, and then uh, three is now going into this temporal dimension, which is something we've wanted, I've wanted for a long time. Um, but uh, the reason why I consider them had to have such a continuity is because they're actually working off of the same data set. They are, you know, uh, there's a really nice article on the NVIDIA website, and press were briefed on it as well, too, uh, in a more, I even think in a more thorough fashion, uh, just like we were briefed on whatever it is. And it's using motion vectors. It's using all the same, DLSS3's frame generation is using all the same inputs DLSS2 is doing, but just it's it's utilizing that information in a different way to generate new information in a different way with the help of this optical flow uh, um, kind of analysis that's also happening. It is I think it's actually building on the same you know principles that DLSS two worked on. So I consider it very much so in the continuity of it. Whether or not it's a good marketing idea though is a whole other question. Uh, I think people, uh, when they think DLSS, they think about DLSS 2. So when they see it um, doing something different and it's being advertised as increasing frame rates, they maybe like the initial presumption is, oh, they're somehow they're working from a lower resolution to do this or something like that. Uh, but then you then you hear about how it actually functions, and then you you may feel uh, like, oh, they should probably not call it that. Uh, that's a whole other question, but I think it still is very much so within the same realm of things. The only thing is, like, 
Uh, how you analyze it, though, as a result is very, very different. Uh, the way I'll be having to analyze whatever DLSS3 is doing is not going to be the same way I have to look at uh, FSR2, XESS, or even DLSS2, because that temporal dimension is like, it's really hard to encapsulate in a video form, which uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Do they do they still allow you to split this up in the game, like a, a DLSS3 game? Can you... What if you don't uh, want to use the frame generation? You just turn so, it off. Okay, so you, you just turn it off. Yeah, you don't need. So to frame generation off. is a separate option from the image yeah. quality of boost because you still want DLSS, but maybe not frame generation. Yeah, and this is important, right? Because um, frame generation adds latency without exactly. reflex. Um, so you know, if you're playing Overwatch, for example, and it has DLSS three, well, first of all, I don't think it should have DLSS three frame generation. Probably doesn't need it. It's not a you know any no. esports title. You don't want a feature that adds latency, even if it's mitigated no, by no. reflex, right? I don't think it's a good fit. So this is something which I do think is important, which we have flagged in the in our content, which is that traditionally when you get a frame rate uplift you also get a corresponding uh, reduction in input lag. Uh, you know, it, it could be better, it could be worse, depending on how effective reflex is. But the point is that frame generation will add, you know, you're buffering something, so there will be extra latency there. And I think that's that's pretty clear. Just, uh, just as I don't, uh, just to talk about that input latency difference, because it is grabbing onto another frame, essentially, and holding it to be able to generate this new frame at all. So. You can expect something like that. Um, the thing is, like historically, it's actually not new in the uh, graphics card space. And it's something that at the time when this uh, was around, it wasn't really analyzed much at all. But um, when SLI and Crossfire did exist and were really big, um, you know, the standard method to render out that double frame rate almost that you were getting with AFR uh, was to hold onto a frame so that you could actually, because uh, like each GPU was still processing the one frame it was handling in the same amount of time to make sure that the frame rate pumped out was higher, they had to hold a frame. They, the speed of light latency was the same, was smaller, but the input latency was actually just about the same as running a, a single card configuration. Uh, but that was at the time when people weren't investigating these things. There wasn't your battle nonsense. There wasn't, you know, it was just basically like bar graphs and everyone loved the bar graphs. Uh, so you can almost think about as a result of that, you could kind of think about like DLSS 3 being a like a, a more neural intelligent way of doing like AFR. It's almost like SLI on one yeah. chip with the, the the generated frame being done in a different manner. That's about it. It's very, it's interesting. Uh, I wonder if they could have advertised it like that almost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a very I different think, way to look, perspectivize it. And I think when talking about all this input latency stuff, we have to consider the types of games where this is useful because I think right. most competitive games aren't necessarily heavy enough to even require this, especially in a 4090. But this is very useful for extremely high-end ray tracing-based experiences. And it basically allows you to get much smoother results out of those games than you otherwise would be able to. So it, it makes that high-end ray tracing more viable, basically. Or even without ray tracing, something like Microsoft Flight Simulator right which is super cpu bound this allows you to take the frame rate higher than you'd otherwise be able to 
Yeah, Flight Simulator isn't really a game where you worry about input lag. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and about, also, that's immersive stuff. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, let's quickly go through a couple more qu- uh, DLSS three questions while we're here. This one from Tamer Escander. Hi, DF amigos. Do you, do you anticipate DLSS three frame generation to mitigate problems like inconsistent frame times or stutters? Well, Alex refers to, to this in the content often as frame amplification, which I think is a really good way of describing that it's amplifying something that's already there and happening. So if the thing that is there and happening has stutters and lag, um, then it will still be there in the amplified version. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the other thing, of course, is that um, going back to Alex's analogy about um, effectively um, DLSS3 being like SLI from from the past, well, you know, rather than the second GPU generating the the second frame, uh, this uh, DLSS3 frame generation is doing it on chip instead. Then, um, yeah, essentially that is actually properly frame paced. You don't really need to worry about that. Um, I want to I want to go on to the the final question about DLSS3 from Sam Den. Hey there, good digit founders. I I am personally responsible for the digit nine. Uh, anyway, uh, I wonder what you think of DLSS3 being an exclusive feature to the 40 series cards. Do you think it could run on 20, 30 series with lower performance gains? I would imagine that even a 30 series card needing a couple of extra milliseconds to create the intermediate frames may actually cause games that are CPU limited to become GPU limited and have smoother frame times overall, plus higher FPS. Thoughts? Question mark? Um, well, it's all about the optical flow analyzer, which they say is three times faster than previous architectures. Yeah, that, that's the thing. People pointed out that the, the last card, of course, you still have the optical flow analyzer in the tensor core there, but it's not the same, right? Yeah. And I guess yeah, the, the performance yeah. uplift you get from this hardware change is what makes this possible at a speed that makes sense. Because frame generation seems kind of useless if it's too slow to generate it at, you know, Basically, what's the point if if you're yeah. you know struggling to actually make it work, right? Yeah. So as an example of how it works at all on a television is that the television just says, "Well, I don't, I don't care." <laughs> it just uh, increases the input latency at that point for the frames being generated. Uh, for NVIDIA, that is something that they obviously don't want to do. They want to have a certain level of input latency here that is insured, uh, and that that requires essentially, I would imagine as well as the performance implication, because there is still a processing time about all this. It's all about you know uh, making sure that it has a good input latency experience, as well as it has a near doubling of the frame rate. Like I said, it won't be doubled because there's still that processing time of uh, actually generating the, the intermittent frame and all these things. Uh, the, the thing that you uh, s- uh, said there about um, Maybe offering a better experience in uh, uh, CPU-limited scenarios is very interesting uh, because that is something that we'll probably want to test in our review. And I think Rich is already probably behind the scenes already been thinking about this a lot. Is like, say you have like a lower-end CPU and you have like a, let's pretend you have a theoretical RTX 4070 that doesn't exist right now. And you're on a Ryzen 5 3600, and you're playing Spider-Man. And that game, if you pump it all up, man, that that CPU-limited frame rate is going to be gnarly. It's going to be, at least in the current version, let's say it's like 35 to 45 FPS in the worst scenes in the game. Well, CPU-limited frame rates are really ugly in terms of frame times. 
Um, they're not really good to look at. Uh, and if you amplify that frame rate with DLSS3, it's also technically, even on a G-Sync screen, maybe not going to be too great looking, you can imagine. So in a scenario like that, um, and the scenario you're saying about running it on an older GPU, one thing you have to think about is that maybe you don't run a game to its CPU limit, which we would probably almost say for any game actually out there, regardless of DLSS3, but rather you would cap the frame rate internally in some way to make it so that DLSS3 is going to produce things smooth frames. Uh, that's the way I would put it out there. Just It's like a semi-response to your answer. But basically, don't I would say almost for any game, don't run it to the CPU limit. You're going to be creating weird CPU-related frame drop scenarios that don't happen if you just cap a little bit below that. Uh, so, yeah. I will say, though, I am very interested to see how DLSS performs in the lower-end Ada Lovelace cards because... Um, that's where it feels like the advantage will really be felt. Like the 4090 seems so fast as is that you kind of don't need this in most cases currently, right? But like, let's say, you know, if this works really well on say the conceivable 4060, right? Uh, that could mean a significant performance uplift in a lot of games that, that looks much smoother than what you would traditionally get at that level. Basically, if we look at the monitor market at the moment and where the concentration of purchases is, it's on high refresh rate 1440p. Um, I'm not sure what the VRR windows are on those sort of uh, screens, but they're going to be quite wide, I'd imagine. So basically, you know, DLSS3 will enable you to be, you know, a game that would be sort of, I don't know, you know, 60 FPS without any, for, you know, native, add DLSS2 add DLSS3 frame generation, and then suddenly it's a different ballpark, right? You know, you'll you'll be maxing out or getting close to, potentially, the uh, the refresh rate of your display. And uh, I, I see that as being the big, big gain with uh, DLSS3. What That's I want to see is if, like, something like Doom Eternal, which, you know, with the right settings on a powerful card, you can already get hundreds of frames per second. <laughs> If they were to add this in, like, can you actually get, can you cross the 1,000 FPS barrier? Like, I honestly think you probably could in Doom Eternal. I would love to see Because that game's so CPU, so CPU optimized. Yeah. That would be, that would be, I don't know if they would want to do it for the input latency consideration. No, that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't know, but maybe, you know, I would like to see its next game do what, it. Maybe, what if they just did to see path, 1,000 FPS. Path traced Doom Eternal. No. Yeah, no, that, that but remember when like we did to talk it. to them, they did say that they they actually did all their primary rendering initially with ray tracing to make sure it works in in the ray traced view. That was a very interesting. So they yeah, technically could maybe even path trace I, doing exactly. Something. Okay, um, let's quickly move on from uh, DLSS three to the other RTX stuff that was revealed. RTX Vmix is essentially a tool that would allow. Um, basically, the, the Quake RTX treatment, the Portal RTX treatment, to be deployed to a whole host of, um, of older titles. Alex, let's talk about Remix. What, what yeah. caught your eye there? Go, Alex, so go. Remix, Bring it. Remix, go, Alex, go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Remix is uh, it's a tool that plugs into Omniverse, as far as I can tell, um, that essentially takes your DX9, DX8 era games, uh, I don't know what, what its coverage of OpenGL is from that era at all. Um, and mm. I think a presupposition is that they have to be forward-rendered, uh, that the current tools do not support deferred rendering, uh, but they could. Uh, and the, basically, in, in that scheme, uh, it's really easy to pick out via draw calls and just what the native GPU would is was even capable of at that time. It's, easy, it's easier to parse that stuff. And then... 
uh, essentially you can like override draw calls and the primary rendering through this new renderer that they have. You can replace assets, you can replace textures, you can use the original textures and then AI upscale them and apply texture materials to them based upon what the original diffuse texture was. It's like, what on earth? Um, it, it is, it's base, it looks like super sweet modding tools to make an RT remaster of a game. And uh, you can with, basically uh, use these tools to make this and then export it as a package that then people can install themselves, right? And, it's, and, and, it, and it runs natively in the game executable too, because oh, it's, it's just, just overriding wild. it all. It's, so, it's cool. so It It almost did look like, like if you told me about this like 10 years ago, it's, it really does look like science fiction. Um, but, you know, it, it, what, you saw the demonstrations. It, it, it reminds work. me of what Dario is doing with that N64 emulation work, you mm -hmm. know, where it's like. Very much so. It's, it's very much that kind of thing, like intercepting this stuff and then, you know, injecting this into the game and you get these in unbelievable results. I really can't yeah, wait to see more with this. Uh, it's nuts. And, you know, it's like generating motion vectors too. It's using like denoising from this new engine. It has the ability to inject and actually have it stay there, like uh, Frustum-aligned voxel fog that's informed by the path tracing. It's, it's like totally nuts really cool i guess the only downside is that it hasn't been announced anything about it yet um it, like in what state it's going to be released it's currently attached to omniverse but that means you would maybe need to use omniverse to have access to these this really cool tool uh so that's both a positive and obviously a negative for those who don't want to use omniverse um, omniverse is pretty good though but still yeah yeah your point still stands good. yeah uh the other thing was uh I guess what was built off of this was Portal RTX. Like, um, and I've seen Portal RTX. It looks very, very good. Um, that's just an impression. But um, they essentially, for that, it seems like they used this tool, taking the normal Portal game and replaced everything with it, uh, doing that, like all the assets, the textures. Um, it looks like a complete. It looks like a like a modern remastering of the game, which is very, very, very impressive. Um, like I said, I've seen it. It looks amazing. I will definitely be making a full video on that when the time comes. Looking when I at can. that that footage and such, like just seeing light pouring through the portal, like, yeah, that just blew, blows my mind to to think of that. <laughs> like, wow, light actually moving through the portal correctly. Like, yeah, there there's so many there's so many things in games that we've almost. Like we just kind of categorically ignore like yeah. light moving actually in a realistic manner is one of the ones that is always surprising because like there's little effects in real life that you just see all the time. And then all of a sudden they're in a video game. You're like, oh, that's right. That's that's actually how it works. <laughs> so that's what I imagine Portal is going to be like. Uh, and it's also using kind of like I think it's using their the exact same renderer as the um, uh, the remix project. Uh, so we're going to basically basically with portal when we touch that we're going to get a really good sense of what the rendering features are of um of this new rtx remix stuff yeah isn't isn't portal built entirely on remix so yeah, it is. yeah 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 it so is this and is like, this is basically your showcase for what remix right. can do the thing yeah <laughs> I, I was kind of wondering though what if you can use rtx remix to go in reverse in some de degrees where it's like you actually make the assets <laughs> look older you know, I, I want to see you make you a game could. look more like Virtua Racing, but with uh, path tracing. You know, There's like quite simplify nothing... everything. They could, there's, right? There, 
Yeah, because you could just you could do anything you want with the yeah, asset you replace. They could become like bunnies. <laughs> they could become who knows. It's your choice. We could make low spec gamer the game. <laughs> just like. <laughs> oh, hi, Alex. How you do? Uh, Cyberpunk, Alex, the Overdrive RT. Essentially, the entire lighting has been replaced with uh, with ray tracing, right? Yeah, so this one is actually hard. Like they, they call it replacing all of the lighting with RT. And at what point do you actually start calling things path racing, I wonder, because the direct lighting is done via ray tracing now, which obviously it wasn't before. There was still there were still uh like shadow maps. Uh well in the update they got rid of shadow maps, but the thing that was lighting the surface was still a, an analytical light. And now the surface is actually lit by a ray trace you know, being done, which is very different. Uh, and then they're going to be ripping out, like, in my initial review of uh, Cyberpunk's ray tracing, I, like, pointed out all these areas where it was really, really different looking. Uh, but then uh, towards the latter half of that video, I pointed out the fact that the Psycho RT setting that adds in a layer of RTGI, it only adds that on top of the initial, uh, like, IBL, like, image-based lighting, um, like grid of probes that were manually placed and also automatically placed around the game. So it would it would still like it would how do you call that? It would um, still have the same errors that that would have. And I showed off a number of scenarios there. So then they're going to rip that out, and then they're going to replace it with like the equivalent of very similar to something that like Metro Exodus has. And that is a huge deal in a game like Cyberpunk. Um, like my video back then showcased a lot of the scenarios where like the sky lighting and um, the emissive lighting was making really big strides and or the ray trace reflections were big strides. But there's also a lot of scenes in the game that are just like, eh, the, this rasterized lighting is like, eh, there's, they're going to look so different now. Um, it's going to be awesome looking. It's going to be an incredible looking game. Uh, and then I guess the other upgrade that they also mentioned too was um, that they're upgrading the, the reflections. Apparently going to be multi-bounce, which I don't think any Whoa. released game yet has. We've not seen that knowledge. yet, have we? Like, no. There's always I, like a fallback after the first bounce. Yeah, so it's like Minecraft RTX may, and like Quake 2 RTX. Those are pass-race yeah. games, though. Yeah, those so are pass-race. Like, uh, so I don't know. There's a lot of stuff going on there. and also It sounds pretty pass-race to me, like when you get right to like, yeah, conceptually. Yeah, it does sound like a pass-race game. I don't know why they don't call it that. Uh, maybe uh, there's some technical reason they don't. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah probably. But uh, uh, I guess one thing that's interesting about Cyberpunk to mention, and I assume it's also probably going to cover Portal, I don't know, um, is that it's you know leveraging some of the new uh, things that ADA, uh, this RTX 4000 uh, series, has, other than obviously DLSS 3. But there's like ways uh, that data is fed into the GPU uh, regarding like shaders and uh, materials to make it the GPU run more efficiently, essentially. Because like a really big problem in ray tracing is that like, oh, if you have a whole bunch of different materials, uh, like the GPU as it is moving in between different materials that it's tracing against, if they're not put into an order, essentially you have like big gaps in like the things you're processing. Uh, and they and they have to wait until essentially it goes in order again to start processing again on another material. And it leaves huge gaps in the timeline. You're not using your GPU very efficiently. And this is something that ray tracing inherently does. Uh, architectures try and get around it in different ways. Um, AMD doesn't do anything for that other than saying, you know, like, you should probably create 
like on the software side, a um, a thing that uh, how do you say, say that bins and orders maybe materials. Uh, but you know, uh, Intel uh, on their GPU, they have a thing that will sort rays to help prevent this problem, as well as they have a couple of other architectural things that make this issue less less apparent. Uh, and on NVIDIA side, apparently now with Ada Lovelace, they have a special format or something, or part of the NVAPI SDK that you can plug into that'll give you, I it still has yet to be explained, unfortunately, so I don't have a good amount of info on this. The, the white paper isn't out, but it'll apparently try and mitigate this issue uh, that really eats into frames uh, for uh, ray tracing games. And this is one thing that it's gonna be, over time, it's gonna be hard to say how much better Ada Lovelace is than Ampere with ray tracing because of stuff like this. Like, it can technically be probably a lot faster, but if it requires you to use an NV API thing to get the most out of the ray tracing in your game, well then who knows actually how universally more powerful it'd be. Definitely for something like Cyberpunk. We're gonna see it at full tilt there though. Fair enough. Well, we're almost an hour into this show. I kind of think we maybe should have done a NVIDIA Direct, but let's move on to other news. <laughs> Okay, so um, John, good news. Xbox seems to be uh, uh, slightly reducing its stranglehold with online DRM. You've you've made a note here. Major strides made. So talk That's us through right. it. So yeah, uh, Xbox and DRM. It's been a complicated relationship dating back to essentially the reveal of Xbox One. Some of those <laughs> aspects never fully went away. There's still sort of this check-in stuff happening, and you know whatever. But Xbox is actually paying attention. They're listening to to the critiques that people have on the stuff. And sure enough, we're fi finally starting to see some of the fruits. So what I'm referring to in this case is one of the problems that's faced the series consoles especially is that let's say you have an Xbox One game, you put that game in your console and either the console's offline or you just want to install the disc and just play it without downloading all the stuff. It basically locked you out of it. And there would also sometimes be check-ins on this stuff. Some games wouldn't start for whatever reason. You know, there was a bunch of stuff connected to this whole setup. Now it's possible with this update, at least based on my testing so far, is you can just, like if you set your system offline, you pop a game disc in for an Xbox One game, you can just boot it up and start playing. You don't have to worry about the patch. It's not a requirement, which is how it is on the other consoles as well. Obviously, you know, in multiplayer games, you'll need a patch in order to play online, right? But for anything else, like, it seems like it's much easier to now boot up older games or any of these games and just play without having to worry about being connected online. Uh, the check-in stuff has been reduced, it seems. Like, I haven't fiddled too much with that on the digital game side, but it does seem to have corrected some of these issues. A modern vintage gamer has had a lot to say about this. He's done some good videos on it, so... Check that out for a better explanation of what was going on. Uh, and now we kind of see what's been fixed. They did, however, specify, of course, that this doesn't apply to Xbox 360 games, Xbox original games, Xbox Zero, if you will, uh, or Game Pass games. And part of the reason for the check-in stuff there, and as well as the need to download, is one, obviously Game Pass, right? You don't own the game, so you're going to have to check in. That's fair. Uh, for the other platforms, however, due to the way backwards compatibility works, they essentially wrap these games up in like a virtual machine environment, and that's what you use. You're not actually playing the game from the disc. Uh, so 
to work on the new consoles, you have to download something. So I get that. There is no way to just play a 360 game natively on this system without a download. So that won't change. That's fine. Like, you know, you can still, if you, if you really want to have those offline all the time, you can still use the original hardware. That's fair. Um, so the, all that's basically left then, there's only really two issues left. And I do think Microsoft is actually looking at this stuff uh, from what I understood. One is the online activation thing, which isn't really a problem right now for most people. But the idea is that when you get a new console, you have to update it and connect it online and log in to even use it at all. Right. And this only becomes a problem long term uh, if you're like into collecting old consoles like I am. Right. So conceivably with repairs, you know, finding a new old stock unit, you know, keeping the stuff running, that could be a problem. But I think early on, the idea was they wanted to make sure that when you get the machine, especially when they shipped them at first, they weren't fully like ready necessarily. You had to download the OS update. And I understand, you know, wanting the OS update makes sense. But one solution to this, I think, would be like make sure that the game discs themselves have the option to install the OS update necessary for playing that game. That's what happens on on Nintendo and Sony platforms and has since like, you know, mid early 2000s. Since the the PSP, I think, is the first one to do this, uh, so that would that would solve that problem at least from making sure that the games could run even if the console was out of date, right? And then the other thing is just uh, the smart delivery discs, where you have some games where you you know you buy the disc, you take it home. If the game date is on the disc, then it might just be the Xbox One version in some cases. And I think this this will eventually just be solved by the nature of Xbox One going away, right? Like as the series X becomes the default machine and cross gen starts to disappear, then that's, what's going to be on the disc. It's already the case with, with some games that are like small enough, right? Where if the game is not huge, you can actually have all those versions on one disc without a problem. So it's really just the only real issue left, I guess there is that there are some games that are so large in terms of file size, or maybe were incomplete at launch, like Halo Infinite, where the game isn't actually on the disc. And in that case, I would like special cases made where it's like, okay, you know, a year later we do like a complete edition or like a game of the year edition like they used to do, right? Where here it is, all updated, everything here, even heck, put two discs in the package. This is the ultimate disc version, and there it is. So... But honestly, I want to say, you know, I, I'm really, uh, I'm thrilled. Microsoft is actually really listening to this stuff and that's great. I think this is good for people and I appreciate that they not only listen, but they com- they communicate with the community on this stuff. And it does show that this does matter to them. So, yeah, I guess the other thing though, John, is that they lose nothing by doing this. Exactly. I mean, people still love game pass and the digital stuff you know right they still have that it doesn't hurt to offer this as well and that's i think that internally they do actually care about this stuff it's just you know figuring it all out and implementing it based on the way the system was initially designed maybe i don't know but mm-hmm. it's looking up fair enough okay let's move on to the next news topic um this may well be a case of defeat uh, snatched from the jaws of victory um very heartening news story earlier in the week that the first PlayStation uh, Plus classic game with 50 hertz, 60 hertz switching arrived in the power territory, Siphon Filter 2. 
then uh, this morning, uh, Alex pointed out a, a resetter thread, which basically said that this um, this siphon filter to release isn't working to uh, what we to the accepted quality level that we'd expect. And so, John, we actually delayed filming here, so you could uh, go hands on and see what's going on. So, look, what's going on here? So, I haven't actually measured the the, the frame rates here, uh, but based on my quick experience with it. What they've done is this. First of all, the download for Siphon Filter 2 is six gigabytes, which is frankly absurd for a PlayStation 1 game to begin with. But part of the reason why it's that large is that it includes, uh, it does actually include the NTSC and PAL versions of Siphon Filter 2. When you boot the game in one or the other, you actually get the different startup uh, legal information and the publisher information. Like the PAL version specifies Sony Computer Entertainment Europe. And so we can see that they are actually different versions of the game in there. That explains the file size. Problem is when I booted up in NTSC mode, I immediately noticed that, wait a second, uh, Gabe Logan's uh, wonderful run cycle is a little bit slow. It doesn't play at full speed. The game was still running slowly. So I booted up the PAL version. It actually seemed to be a little bit faster for some reason. So... Again, I haven't tested this enough to say 100%, but my current running theory is that what they've done here is that when launching this game, for whatever reason, in that wrapper, they they have included the North American version, but it seems like they're running the North American version at the equivalent of like 50 hertz or slower, like in a container where somehow it is running at a slower speed than it's actually intended to. Which if you do that with a 60 hertz game and you actually try to force it into a 50 hertz container, it is obviously just going to run slow. But then the audio would also be messed up, which it's not. The videos would be messed up, which they're also not. So the whole thing just confuses me. I don't understand what's going on. But sure enough, the gameplay is running in slow motion, despite actually including the NTSC version of the game. So, (laughs) okay. I they, think Capture they, could probably, uh, we could figure out via Capture what is actually happening. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to try to capture that and better understand, like, okay, what's actually going on here? Because it is utterly baffling. Because, you know, on the face of it, PlayStation 5, you know, PlayStation 4, they're, they're 60 hertz consoles, right? Right. So just put out the 60 hertz version that works perfectly fine on the US version of PlayStation Plus. So, so the, the concept that it's not working... Um, is kind of baffling to me. Just just does not compute. Um, more on that soon, I guess. Uh, final news topic. So, um, John, you wanted to chime in on this one. There's a new Star Ocean demo. It's amazing, but um, you've, you've noted here on the sheet, serious issues without VRR display. Yeah, so first of all, I, I, I do really like this. I was impressed with the demo. But to be fair, it feels like a PS2 era game with much higher quality visuals, so it may not strike everyone, but I really liked what I played. Problem is, is uh, there's some very strange technical decisions that have been made. And I mentioned this a little on Twitter, but there's actually two problems. One, there's a problem with the frame rate on all versions. And then two, there's a problem specifically with the Xbox version, which needs to be called out. So the main issue here is that when you boot up the game, you're given the choice between a quality mode and a performance mode, right? Quality mode works exactly as intended. It runs at 30 frames per second, even frame cadence, it's fine. But in performance mode, if you boot up on a display without VRR enabled, 
uh, they seem to be using a double buffer VSync solution, which means if the frame rate falls under the target, you know, or if the if the frame times goes over the sixteen point seven millisecond uh, budget, there it actually waits to flip for the next frame, and you end up with what effectively looks like thirty frames per second. But because the game is always in these busy areas, it's always kind of riding around that cusp a little bit, where it's like in that high fifties range. Uh, you have this problem where just turning the camera, looking up and down, the game is constantly bouncing between 60 and 30. So it feels awful. And this is what I first saw people complaining about. But then I loaded up the demo myself with VRR enabled, of course, and I was like, wow, this feels so smooth and polished. It's very consistent. But then I actually looked at the the VRR frame readout and you see, oh, it's not actually locking to 60. You can see it's dipping below that. So I turned off VRR and sure enough, it's just as people described. It's terrible. Uh, the solution here, as far as I see, is just use triple buffering, right? Like it does have a slight input latency um, penalty, but it's worth it for that big time, I think, for the extra fluidity. Like even if they're not locking to 60, which sucks, you know, sh having 55 FPS with a little bit of judder is vastly preferable to dropping all the way to 30 and then going back up to 60 like the way it is now it's bad so that's problem one. Second problem then i loaded up the xbox demo on series x and immediately uh i noticed um these fonts there's something wrong here the actual interface is very low res and blurry and then you get into the game and same kind of thing to the point where i was almost wondering is this like mistakenly running the Xbox One VCR version? Like it looks more like Xbox One than Series X. It's vastly much, it's a much lower resolution game, which doesn't make sense. So I, I don't know how to explain that. It's just that it's not to Series X quality and I don't understand why. And I, I hope they actually fix that because uh, that's not fair to Xbox customers. If so... That's, that's really not not a good look. It's Especially considering like, with the history there, like Star Ocean 4 launched on 360 first, right? Tri-Ace did Infinite Undiscovery on 360 as well. Like there's a history of Xbox 360 and Tri-Ace, but also with PlayStation. Like they, they've supported them equally over the years. So I really don't know what's up with that version. Furthermore, the Xbox version has increased input lag despite still having this frame rate issue. Uh, just the movement and camera movement is much heavier and feels much slower than it does on PlayStation 5. And again, I don't I don't get it. It basically, to me, feels like the Xbox version is massively undercooked in its current form. And I hope it's just a demo thing and that by launch, it's actually fine. But uh, it is concerning. That's, one, that's why I wanted to raise it here, just to get that word out there that, like, you guys need to do something here. <laughs> okay, um, that's it for news. And wow, this has been a, a jumbo news uh, news section jumbo. this week. Um, let's go straight on to support Q&A. This is the part of the show where every week we poll our supporters, asking them for, the, for their queries, and uh, we pick the best and we tackle them on the show. First one from Dan Conwell. 
This week, a comment was found on the Linux kernel mailing lists and then reported by various outlets written by an NVIDIA employee, which seems to confirm the use of the Tegra T239 in the next Nintendo console. I believe this chip has been identified in the past with some analysis and speculation from yourselves. How does this seemingly firmer information look in the current context of the Steam Deck DLSS 3.0 and other contemporary developments? And what clues would you suggest the timing of the comment gives with respect to the launch date? Um, I'll tackle what I think about this one first of all. Um, DLSS 3, uh, it's for the uh, Lovelace architecture. Um, it won't work on Ampere and it looks like T239 is based on Ampere, right? So I would factor out DLSS two, uh, 3. DLSS 2, Alex did an amazing video about the potential applications of that on a mobile chipset. It's not the slam dunk that you know you might think it is. There's, there is processing time implications there. Um, I think there's also been some comments that the T239 has eight cores rather than 12, and also that the efficiency cores are disabled or removed, which would be entirely in line with Nintendo Switch. Um, so I think on the balance of probabilities, this chip does exist, and it probably is the one that's going into the next Nintendo console. Um, if if there are uh, Linux um, uh, comments being made, Linux submissions being made, I'd suggest that the chip is out of, of, of um, sort of pre-production and into fabrication. I still think we're looking at Switch happening next year, uh, the new one. And I still think it's likely to be tied into the Tears of the Kingdom um, launch, similar to the way Breath of the Wild was with Switch 1. Um, I haven't really got any more thoughts to say on this, except to say, um, as always, remember Nintendo is all about power efficiency and um, don't expect this thing to be running at massive clocks, but it will obviously be a generational leap over Tegra X1. Don't know if you've got anything to add to that, Alex? Uh, yeah, just one side note, and I don't think this is going to happen. So please don't write an article <laughs> about this. <laughs> uh, is uh, Technically, they could get DLSS 3 on there if they uh, left it as like the generic cores on there are Ampere-based ones. And, you know, uh, I would imagine that is going to be, but they just replaced the um, uh, my, the optical flow accelerator uh, or processor, or however you want to call it, um, which is a fixed function chip living outside the GPU die, as far as I understand. Um, so if they did that, then DLSS 3.0 would become viable in the fact that it's technically possible. But come on, it's Nintendo. Like, they're very rarely up here with their tech. It's more like what's capable under a certain power envelope, et cetera. So that's just one thing I would say. I just found a news story here on VGC. It's saying, uh, according to Digital Digital Foundry's Alex Patalia, DLSS 3 is confirmed for the next Switch. Man, they're fast. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Thank you, you, I really (laughs) hope you just made that up, John. I made that up. (laughs) (laughs) Richard almost had a heart attack there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because, you know, there's been a lot of situations where um, the comments have been uh, misconstrued and turned into news stories. The, the classic one being Breath of the Wild 2, too big for Switch. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's the that's, that's the, the vanguard, the, the gold standard. Too big in, for uh, Switch. Too big. It's too physically too large. 
Um, the, the optical flow situation, uh, yeah, I think that would be a bit of a, a deal breaker. I, think, I still think, Alex, based on your comments, um, your calculations even based on DLSS2 processing time, if it works on switch, uh, it's going to need some degree of optimization to, to run at 60, um, 30 quite possibly. Uh, the one thing I would say about the whole optical flow thing is that... Um, this thing is designed to make really fast moving imagery still hold up with frame amplification. Um, I suspect that the computational requirement for, for producing an in-between a frame would actually be a lot lower on something that's running very slow, right? You wouldn't need that level of precision. So, you know, it's not totally out of the question, but certainly in the implementation that we've seen this week, it's, it is off the table. I'm just imagining like a situation where you take like the seven frames per second of Star Fox and bump that up. You know, it's so yeah. slow and so simple. Like to surely. fourteen, it'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> stable fourteen, exactly. Oh my god, dream. Let's just. I think we should just confirm DLSS four next generation <laughs> switch. I think DLSS yeah. four is actually coming to RDNA eight. So yeah, I'm really quickly DLSS, DLSS three joke, but. If you do not, if you recall, not too long ago, there was rumors being circulated about DLSS three being something that it is not at all. By the way, so DLSS three came out, and it is not at all what people were rumored about. So, what did they think it was? They thought it would be a universal DLSS two, which is just really absurd. Like the fact yeah. that, like, oh, they don't even have to integrate DLSS two into games; it just works for every game, like a driver control panel feature. That's not um, that was the rumor. That is not feasible. No. You've got to tie in. Okay. Well, let's move on to the next question very quickly. I think this one's quite easy to answer. There's a lot of talk about CPU and GPU speeds, but how big a difference does RAM make? Uh, I'm currently on a Ryzen 9 3900X with a 2080 Super and 64 gigs of DDR4 RAM at a DRAM frequency of 1064.5 megahertz, according to CPU-Z. I get the odd stutter now and again in, in games. I can't help but wonder if my choice of RAM is to blame. So yeah, basically, if CPU-Z is reporting that, then your real frequency is double that. So, you know, circa 2100, 2133 megahertz, which is like the the absolute bargain basement lowest speeds that you should be running RAM at. And it's not a good fit for Ryzen um, 3900X. So maybe you just need to turn on XMP or DOCP or whatever it's called on your motherboard. Yep. Um, or for, for the love of God, get a faster memory kit. Um, because uh, Ryzen, especially Ryzen, uh, the, the Ryzen 3000 line, loves fast RAM. Um, really loves fast RAM, and you will get a, an appreciable performance uplift. And by so, the way, yes. that was from Stuart Hart. Stuart Hart, yes. Hi, Stuart. Uh, anything to add to that one, Alex? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm hoping you didn't buy that slow of a kit uh, in general. <laughs> so like, like Rich was saying, um, definitely uh, load up your BIOS or uh, what UEFI. Uh, UI thing yeah, the, and make sure BIOS. that it's XMP. Yeah, they call it BIOS still. It's just always so, I always want yeah. to call it something else. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> okay. UEFI. UEFI. Um, uh, next question. Hey, DF crew, do you feel there's been a paradigm shift at Konami of late? They seem to be opening their archive of fan favorite back catalog titles beyond their most well-known IPs like Castlevania and Contra. Do you think they will return somewhat to form in the near future by developing new titles again? Or will they continue to re-release older titles on newer platforms as they are released? As always... 
thank you for your time. Cheers to all. Uh, yeah, Mark Smith there. Um, what do you reckon there, John? Uh, they certainly do seem to be more interested in games again. Uh, I don't know the reasoning for that per se. It does. It's been, you know, a decent amount of time since they essentially divested themselves of creating games. So it does make me wonder if they determine that, hey, you know, even with these other businesses here, uh, either there's an issue there or they just realize that they could still make some money and back in games as well. And why not just license your IP out to other creators and get get money that way? Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it does seem like they do have some internal developments happening as well. Uh, and I was really surprised to see at the TGS review of uh, Suikoden 1 and 2. And that it got like a full hour presentation. Like they really gave it the time of day. So it does kind of feel like they're at least mildly interested in making <laughs> games again putting stuff out so konami in mildly interesting yeah, the thing the thing is though, make a game shocker K konami was one of the best game developers of all time up to a certain point uh the problem now is that essentially if they take it internal they're going to be rebuilding their teams from scratch because all the names and people that you know from konami have either left the company or graduated to upper management uh so there's not you know they're not there anymore. So the Konami of today is not the same Konami. So that's why I think we have a mix of developers that are really passionate about uh, Konami games from the past and want to give their own spin on it, as well as, you know, the, the remakes and remaster stuff. And then, of course, you know, if they do more internal development, then, yeah, just building a new team and finding the right people to spearhead it. Okay. Fair enough. Um, let's move on to the next question quickly. Uh, this one, uh, probably one of the biggest news stories of the year, and it dropped um, oh, kind of like a... We didn't even mention it this week. No, we didn't even mention it, and uh, we didn't do a, a direct reaction to it or anything like that. It's almost as if we don't care yeah. about views. <laughs> yeah, um, Techno Dan, <laughs> I'd love to know what your thoughts are on the massive GTA 6 leak and the unfortunate timing of it leaking just as last week's episode was coming out. Yeah, it did happen just as last week's episode was coming out. and um, But I'm not sure. Well, obviously, it's a, it's a massive deal for Rockstar, right? It's a real problem. It's a, it's a gargantuan um, security breach. And basically the reveal of GTA 6 has been sullied as a result. And, you know, there's been a lot of, um, I'd say, um, camaraderie from other developers who have sort of rallied against some of the yeah. really stupid takes that we've seen based on Good the footage that came out. Um, but, yeah, on, on, but on the other hand, um, uh, yeah, it, it is extremely unfortunate. I don't really have too much more to say about that we could there's you know people are asking are we going to be doing an analysis video of of the leaks and it's like no you know th this stuff was never meant to be seen first of all secondly if we want to be sued by take two interactive and we know what their lawyers are like uh, based on previous direct news stories then that would be the way to do it but um yeah um you know basically uh i'd say extreme sympathies with the developers for their work to be unearthed in this way and um, I don't know, John, anything to so, add? So I, I was, I've always been of the opinion that it's cool to see this behind the scenes stuff. And, you know, all of us at DF, we've spent a lot of time uh, with developers, you know, trying to wrap our head, heads around the nuts and bolts of creating these things. We've seen a ton of very early stuff. 
Um, you know, I've done software development myself. You know, I thought we have a pretty decent handle on this kind of stuff. And I figured most people would actually enjoy seeing pre-release stuff. EA did it for Skate 4, that early reveal, uh, Dead Space remake as well. But what this reveal has shown to me, well, the leak has shown to me, is that there's a overwhelmingly large number of people that genuinely don't understand that stuff or even want to try to understand it. And they just see it and they take it at face value. They see a development screenshot like, oh, this is what GTA 6 looks like. And then they react really harshly to it. And that actually genuinely surprised me. I, I didn't expect so many people to be looking at that and actually thinking that this somehow represents what the product's going to look like. Like, I don't know how, I mean, maybe this just speaks to the broader appeal of GTA. There's more people that are completely outside of our little bubble that genuinely, they don't know and they don't care how the sausage is made. They don't want to know. They just want to play their GTA and their men. Uh, and if those people are commenting on it as well, I can't really fault them for not understanding how things work, but there was a lot of weird comments coming out. And there was that one guy in particular, I think there's even a story up on Eurogamer about it, but this guy caused a chain reaction of developers basically sharing early stuff who he basically claimed like graphics are the first thing done in games. Uh, and yeah, needless to say, he got a little bit more attention than I think he bargained for <laughs> because that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> Alex thoughts uh, I feel bad for the developers in the aspect of that this is probably not how they wanted the game to be shown off the first time uh, but just like John I, I find it fast I didn't I didn't comb through it all honestly I just saw like a couple screenshots and I was like mm, this GTA uh, uh, but like I would really love if they did the skate and or command and conquer and or uh, Dead Space style of thing with a game one of these days where it's like, this is what we're experimenting with. Experimenting with. This is what we're um, working on right now. This is what we're doing. And it would have like no promises in it. It would just be like, this is how our games are made. And I would really love to see that. I think uh, but, that's, that yeah. still requires very careful messaging to not mm -hmm. be used against them, right? That's a shame. Well, this, that is the anti-Rockstar approach, right? Yeah. You know, you, you get a trailer. You, you know, your first contact with a game is to get a very carefully uh, choreographed tra trailer, which does usually run on in-game um, engines and whatnot. It tends to be real-time, I think. But you'd never see anything like this. You never see how the, the sausage is made, as, as John describes it. So, um, yeah, this is this is extremely unfortunate for the whole um the whole sort of setup in terms of rockstar what i will say is that i doubt we're going to be seeing this game for two or three years and i think by that time everything would have blown over there may well be even be some you know uh interesting comparisons of the final game looking 10 times better than this leak which is highly likely but that's well even then if you did that you you'd have the lawyers coming after you so this is this is a lot worse than I well it is worse than the Half Life Two leak, the Doom Three leak, but that does it does remind me a little bit of it, you know yeah. where like Half Life Two like so much stuff got out there before launch that also kind of revealed that the game was nowhere near far as far along as it had been suggested given the original release date of two thousand three, uh, including AMD's like famous uh, event on the rock itself if you recall, yeah. <laughs> uh, which didn't, didn't go that well. There was a vouchers given out for that one. But in time, that was damaging for Valve at the time, for sure. But I don't think it ultimately had any impact on Half-Life 2's success or 
the general public outlook on the game and it was very well received when it launched and it continues to be the only real issue with the rockstar leak i see the big issue seems to be the source code stuff getting out because they have the online components in their games and i that could have serious impacts that could be bad for them so okay yeah. Uh, final question from Nalasco. Evening, my dudes. <laughs> uh, question for Mitch. Did you see yourself doing what you do 20 years ago? And do you have any kind of favorite game? You just have to have an official physical version. Thank you for your hard work. You're welcome. Um, did I see myself doing what I do 20 years ago? Um, I don't really know. I don't really have an answer to that because I guess the question is, you know, Basically, what we do right now is entirely reliant on a, a, a various te technological leaps which we could never have anticipated 20 years ago. What I will say is if I look back 20 years ago, essentially a lot of the stuff that I was doing then is kind of foundational for what I do today, which is to say, you know, for example, back 20 years ago, I was doing things like um, we were putting cover-mounted DVDs on the front of magazines, and my mission at that point was to take... Uh, the direct feed gameplay experience and deliver it every month on a magazine via um, a DVD, right? And so that's similar to what we're doing now, where in terms of capturing and stuff, we want to be doing it, um, you know, to deliver the highest possible quality. There was a certain technical angle to that, but nothing really um, that would that, that, that would be correlating to what we do today. I guess I'm just sort of quite surprised I'm still in journalism. Because, uh, you know, most of my contemporaries are long gone. Uh, but I am curious, first of all, <laughs> with you, John, um, but you know, with Alex, 20 years ago, he'd be 12 <laughs> years old. <laughs> but actually, John, what do you reckon? 20 years ago? Uh, 20 years ago, you, I was in university. Do you think you would have been doing what you're doing now? Uh, no, not necessarily. It's the kind of stuff I would have, I had was interested in, but given where I was located, I didn't foresee so many opportunities in that area, which is why I spent all the time, you know, doing IT stuff prior to this, right? So it only really became a feasible thing after we moved to Europe, just because, okay. you know, I'm happy with how that turned out. Okay. Um, I will go to you, Alex, on this, but first of all, let me answer the second part of the question. Do you have any kind of favorite game you just need to have in a physical version? Not really. And to be honest, whenever it's... John's turned up at my house, he's taken all of those physical versions <laughs> to augment his retro collections. <laughs> right, John? Yeah, I've kind of combed over your stuff. That's true. But you, you've but, yeah. kept... I think the the one thing you would say, though, is the, the, the champagne bottle for Mortal Kombat. Ah, uh, yes. The uh, the Mortal Kombat champagne. <laughs> a must-have. It's, it's a must-have piece of memorabilia. Um, but well, let's return to twelve-year-old Alex twenty years ago. Twelve years would old. Have, uh, year two thousand two. I'm barely yeah, prepared. Uh, <laughs> I have a crackly voice and a huge nose. And uh, let's see here. I was at that point in my time. I was super obsessed with space. 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 Uh, <laughs> I wanted to get into astronomy. I wanted to uh, like look at like cosmology and stuff like that uh, but that was before you know like you know anything about the world so i was just playing video games as a hobby back then so i definitely had no idea i would be doing this no okay and is there a physical game that you absolutely must have actually i'll put that to both of you oh physical 
Oof. Yeah. What about your uh, big box crisis? A big box, yeah, well, you kind of need that in a lot of ways these days due to the 64-bit <laughs> EXE weirdness uh, with the Steam versions and the GOG <laughs> versions. Uh, so yeah, actually, Crisis on disc is great. I love Crisis. On, that's the way I play it. I always just pop in the disc. So yeah, okay. Crisis. And, uh, and John, I mean, obviously, as we look at your view now, there's a library of mm. older titles. Man, that you know, plastered across your room, just one. Picking just one—that's so brutal. Yeah, I just—I don't even know if that's I can do that. Brutal. But I mean, okay. it would have to be something like one of the fundamentals, right? Like I would need to. This is presuming I had no internet or something, but I would need to have like a copy of Quake, or I would need to have, uh, you know, a copy of Super Mario World or Sonic the Hedgehog Two. You know, very mm -hmm. specific foundational games. Like I would want to to have those. I mean, I ask because bearing in mind you've taken all of my physical games of value. I know the ones to target next time at you, I'm at yours. Uh -oh. <laughs> Just make them disappear, Rich. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's the final question. And that is the end of our show. Please do like, subscribe, share if you enjoyed it. Ring the bell for those notionally instant notifications. As usual, uh, you know, no guarantees there. That is my disclaimer. A DF supports a program. Join us. There's always tons of stuff going on there and uh, you get the chance to pose your own questions in df direct weekly and you get early access to the show uh, but that's all from all of us right now thanks for watching <laughs>